0: Where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body. Where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves. And where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Messy Intersection. My name is Diana Rice, and I am a pediatric and family health dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, a mom of two, and perhaps most importantly, a person who is hanging out in the messy intersection of New Parenthood right along with you. A quick update about today's episode, I had mentioned on the previous episode with Heather Kaplan that the next episode would be with dietitian Brooke Miller, and I am delaying that episode by two weeks so that Brooke can come back on and share an update about her fertility journey, which also works out because my guest for this episode, Amy Severson, is the co-author of a book that is released today, uh, at least if you are listening to this on the date is published, which is January 4th. So, stay tuned for Brooke's episode on January 18th, and I am so excited for you to listen to today's interview. Amy is the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, which is, uh, if you are a person interested in raising anti-diet kids, this is the resource that you have been waiting for, I promise. Um, But before we dive into that, I'm going to take you on a tangent. Uh, It is related, I promise, (laughs) but it is going to seem like it isn't, so bear with me. A while back, a long time ago, like 10 years or more, I attended a financial health seminar about things like getting your personal finances in order, getting out of debt, saving for the future. And the guy leading the seminar said that he really recommended using just one credit card, you know, not having like your regular visa and also an Old Navy card and also a Target card, Um, you know, just put all of your credit card expenses on one card. And another person attending the workshop said, well, what about the points and the discounts that you get from those cards? Like, couldn't that save you money and ultimately benefit your financial health? And the workshop leader said, look, if you are just starting out to get your finances in order or get out of debt, I don't recommend it. You know, maybe for some people who really have their finances together, it could save you money, but that's like personal finance 5.0, and I just don't recommend it for beginners. Okay, now I am not trying to give you a personal finance hot tip. Uh, It seems like pretty good advice to me, but finance is not my area. So do not take my word for it about the one credit card thing. I'm sharing this because I think about that example a lot when I think about how I don't always feed my own kids according to the Division of Responsibility, which you have probably heard me talk about a lot on the podcast, uh, but I teach Division of Responsibility to my clients and talk about it on Instagram and certainly recommend it as like a first line of defense if you are trying to figure out how to feed your kids, right? So somehow, like, I have the luxury of using, you know, Feeding Dynamics 5.0, because I'm a professional. But I don't recommend being flexible with DOR for beginners, because it probably wouldn't lead to positive feeding dynamics for their families, which I I don't even know if that's 100% true. Um, So anyway, here's the thing. I don't think this analogy holds up. Maybe it's true that personal finance experts can have five credit cards. Um, but I don't think that it is true that only feeding professionals or people who are really confident in their own intuitive eating can be flexible with DOR and everybody else just has to follow DOR religiously. I don't believe that and I haven't believed it for a while, but it's it's kind of hard to say when all the trainings that I've done uh, have been on how to help families use DOR. And as Amy and I are going to discuss in this interview for a really long time, we're talking decades, DOR is all we had in terms of child feeding advice. And it felt irresponsible for me as a professional to break from that, even though I wasn't totally using it with my own kids. And to be very clear, there remain some really valuable elements of division of responsibility. I would certainly say never pressuring your kids, uh, maintaining a feeding schedule for the most part. But to prescribe it as the way to feed kids and especially to dictate that parents should never break from the feeding schedule or add an unplanned food to the meal if it would make the kid more comfortable. It's rigid and it's kind of like a diet, to be honest. And I really apologize for my contributions to that, especially because it's just kind of elitist and unjust to say that I don't have to do something, but it's like the best way to feed kids for people who... I don't know. Don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm I am really sorry about that. So as Amy and I will discuss, we are not saying that DOR is out the window, especially in cases where the child may require a feeding intervention. Uh, But we have a new resource now. We have How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. And folks, I have read this book and it is legit. The ways that I've... Uh, I don't intuitively broken from Dior myself are all outlined in here. Uh, So hopefully, uh, I've been doing something right. Um, And you know, hopefully it can benefit you too, if you choose to read it. I'm going to get to the interview and let Amy tell you more about it. But if you know you're interested in checking this out, you'll find Amazon and bookshop links to the book in this episode's show notes. So okay, My guest today is Amy Severson. Amy is a registered dietitian and owner of the group nutrition practice Prosper Nutrition and Wellness in Bellingham, Washington, and she is the co-author, along with Sumner Brooks R.D., of the brand new book, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. As always, the content on this show is for informational purposes only and not a substitute for professional medical advice, and the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear from Amy. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. Hi, Diana. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. I am so excited about this resource, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, and I can't wait to get started. But um, before we dive in, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'm Amy. Um, I'm a dietitian in Washington State. I live in Bellingham, which is like 30 minutes from the Canadian border, so we're low key Canadian here. I have a private practice here in town. I have a couple of dietitians who work for me. And we see mostly eating disorders, disorder eating. Um, Yeah, that's what I do.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, And you're a parent?
1: I'm a parent. I have a almost eight-year-old daughter. Her birthday is the day after Christmas, so we're coming up on that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you are one of the co-authors of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, which is what we are going to be talking about today. I would love to know a little bit more about the origin story of the book. I hear uh, Elise Rash was involved, one of the co-authors of Intuitive Eating. So
1: how did that all happen? Yeah, I will say on my end, it was surprising. (laughs) Okay. Sumner Brooks, who's the other author of this book, is friends with Elise. She's done a lot of supervision with her and worked really closely with her over the years. And Elise had been hearing for years that, as all of us have who do any of this work, how badly we need resources for parents and for kids in intuitive eating. Because in the original book, there's a single chapter. And then just like random Instagram accounts is basically all the resources that exist. And at least had been hearing this for a long time, but like didn't have the bandwidth to write it or didn't feel like equipped to do it. So she asked Sumner if Sumner had any interest and Sumner did have interest, but not alone. (laughs) Um, So and Sumner and I, we live relatively close to each other, a few hours apart. And we've met each other a few times at conferences and we've chatted a lot online. And she reached out to me and asked if I wanted to help write it with her. So that was the surprising bit was, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: uh, running a group practice and finding time to also write uh, a book
1: probably kept you busy. <laughs> I also highly don't recommend writing a book in the middle of a pandemic. If anyone right. is here to take my advice, that's probably one. <laughs> uh, especially as a parent. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. We signed our contract about a week before, like, everything (sighs) shut down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, that timeline then, with it, you exclusively wrote the book during the pandemic, and, like, we all say, oh, we've been at this for, like, two years, the pandemic, but at the time of this recording, it's not quite two years, and that's actually a really fast turnaround for a book like
1: this. It's, It happened really fast. It was like six months straight of just writing and writing and writing. And then all the edits and everything started happening. And it just has flown by, actually. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you got it out on the timeline that you did, um, because (laughs) it is an incredible resource for parents. So you you talked about this a little bit in the reason that uh, Elise wanted to see the book. But by the time it comes out, it'll be early 2022. Like, why do we need... This particular book, right now, twenty twenty two, and also like maybe why did it take so long for for any resource like this to be available?
1: I, I mean, I cannot speak to why it took so long because um, <laughs> there is like one feeding children resource out there that exists in general, mm-hmm. um, and. It's not the best, and we'll talk about, <laughs> we can that. talk about that. I think I think right now it it's so important. To, well, I I love that it's coming out in January because it's another thing to kind of push against the like, brand new diet culture of the year thing that always happens in January. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a nice cushion. It kind of like, it's a it's a people are looking forward to it, so it gives a cushion to like stop the fall back into you know the need to diet, and I think just, I really think like it's been so long and nothing has changed. Like we've just continued to put kids in these like really shameful places with food. We, you know, I, myself as a parent and so many parents I've spoken to, whether it's clients or friends or anything, whenever they go to, you know, a a pediatrician visit, they're like, well checks. There's always this like, well, what's your favorite vegetable? And, and how many of those do you eat? And like, Oh, they're kind of good going off their curve a little bit. And it's, so shameful. And so and it's also really hard as a parent to know what to do. Even if you are, even if you're a dietitian, even if you, you know, have done a lot of like the intuitive eating work or the fat acceptance work, or you've never done any of it. <laughs> it's like, what, how do I respond to this person with so much yeah. more authority than me? And how do I know that they're they're wrong? Or how do I know yeah. like that I should question this? And it's so important that there's something out there to like give you resources for that.
0: Absolutely. Because even if you want to question it, all of the resources are geared towards adults. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about, the way that intuitive eating looks for kids is not the way that it looks no. for adults. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you, you talk about this as well in the book, that it's a misconception You know, to, to execute intuitive eating the same way that we do it for adults if we want to raise intuitive eaters, which is, I imagine, why you, you wrote a book quite this long about... <laughs> Uh, exactly what to do. I mean, this is not a pamphlet. <laughs> it's not even like a lot of books that I read have some of the author's own personal experience or clinical experience, and then an anecdote and then clinical experience, then an anecdote. Th- this is like a, a uh, dissertation <laughs> like three times <laughs> over. Uh, I-, I was telling you earlier, um, I-, I mostly do audiobooks. so I pre-ordered your audiobook and it's 17 hours long. And I was like, I wonder how long my other audiobooks are. And like, the eating instinct is like nine hours long. Anti-diet is like 10 hours long. So it's kind of two books for one, which I imagine having two authors that, you know, you only had to write, you know, eight and a half hours worth of a book. fine. But um, I don't want to scare any parents off, you know, that it's that long. Like you are getting so much information uh, for for the, for the price of a book. It's
1: awesome. And we tried one of our like really things we held really close to the heart the whole time we wrote it was we didn't want it to be, a textbook. Mm-hmm. We didn't want it to be like so clinical and research heavy and so like impossible to read that you would have to know all the scientific terms. You would have to n- understand research studies. You would have to, to have a professor disseminate it for you. Yeah, <laughs> um, we wanted yeah. it to be readable for everyone, but also be full enough of the research that we could argue against points that came up and professionals could use it as like, yeah, but look at the 10 pages of, <laughs> of references we give you. <laughs> There's
0: like five citations on every page, which is awesome. Yeah. It means that you're not just pouring your own clinical experience into it. You're saying, no, really, this is the evidence we have. It's just nobody has ever put it together like this before, mm-hmm. yeah. which is awesome. Uh, but did you bring some of your own personal experience with your own history with eating and you're raising your kid into the book as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, we definitely did. You know, Sumner and I both have different histories we have different amounts of kids for one thing but we also have different histories personally we have we live in very different bodies we live in very different we we move through the world very differently and having both of those experiences I think is really valuable and we really wanted to bring that in so we 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 bring in different pieces of like this is what happened to me when I was a child and this is how like I came from a very diet heavy family like I can't remember a time when some of my family members were not on. Weight Watchers or Nutrisystem, which I can't believe is a thing, but okay. Um, there was a diet my mom did with my brother and I called the prison diet. Um, oh god, oh god. <laughs> it was a church diet. It was really weird. Oh no, uh, uh, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they a whole lot of potatoes. It was very strange. Um, yeah, nineties man. <laughs> I'm
0: sorry. I am sorry that that you had to go through that.
1: And we also like wanted to bring in the way we are kind of, we, we have used our experiences and our professional experiences with our kids and like the challenges we've had with our kids too, because they're not perfect and we're not perfect parents and yeah, it's never going to be perfect. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't come across like authoritarian. Mm-hmm. This is how it's done. It's like, this is mm-hmm. what we tried. And this is what my kid did in the really weird thing that she we yeah. only hot dog buns for two weeks.
0: Fine. Yep. Yep. Sort of. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you heard it from two
0: dietitians.
1: It's totally fine. <laughs> Please let, let your kitty talk yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so the title of the book is How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. And intuitive eating is kind of a, a buzzword. The past, you know, five or seven years, it's really been gaining steam, which is awesome. Uh, But at the same time, that means it gets co-opted for weight loss purposes. Or I honestly find it's kind of glamorized as like this like ideal standard. So there's a lot of things and you just absolutely discuss all of this in the book that are not so warm and fuzzy as, you know, choosing to eat as many cookies as you want. Like There's a lot of things that go into why kids aren't being raised as intuitive eaters and a lot of um, the criticism of the intuitive eating community is that some folks, um I'm not naming names, but you know, focus more on the intuitive eating part and not on the hard parts, which are fighting fat phobia, divesting from the thin ideal, talking about the origins of fat phobia in patriarchy and white supremacy. And you do, you do discuss all of this in the book, but the title of the book is still about intuitive eating. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, how did that? Was that the publisher's choice, or you know, how did that come about?
1: Yeah, I feel like how to raise an intuitive eater kind of became our like working title as we were mm-hmm. just. I'm terrible with titles. I'm terrible with titles. I'm terrible with profile names. I'm terrible with like that kind of creativity. Yeah, it's not sure. my level of, of work. And I think Sumner and I were like, I don't know how we call it when we pitch how to raise an intuitive eater. And even our publisher at the time was like, eh, we'll figure out a title. And then <laughs> it became the title. <laughs> yeah. So it just kind of stuck. Yeah. Um, but like we weren't. We're. I think we're still not like super sold on. It's not like this is this mm-hmm. is what it has to be. But, and I think part of it is we don't want to just reach out to people who are already like deep in the intuitive eating work. People who Mm. have read intuitive eating, have done the divesting all of this from white supremacy and from patriarchy and all that, you know, all the binary stuff that exists in this world. We wanted to be able to reach people who were maybe newer to this as well. Maybe people who'd never even heard of intuitive eating before mm. but we're interested. So the title kind of keeps it broad. So maybe mm. it's a little bit of a mislead but
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean there's only so much you can say in, you know, 10 words. You you do have a subtitle which is raising the next generation with food and body confidence, mm-hmm. which I think is something that a lot of parents want. Yes. For their kids, hopefully. Yes. Hopefully all parents, although I'm, I'm not 100% on, on that. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I am totally picturing the Amazon reviews that say, I thought I bought a book about feeding kids, and here I am getting slammed for my privilege. <laughs> it's like, it's <laughs> it's it's like, yeah. Well, buddy, you're, you're just going to have
1: to... Uh, I'm pretty sure. I know there's a there's a line in the introduction that says something like, this is our manifesto, and there's mm-hmm. a Goodreads uh, review right now that says, yeah, this is definitely more of a manifesto. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I, I really... Feel think that the way that you executed incorporating the the warm fuzzy intuitive eating stuff with the very difficult stuff, especially for for people coming from the privileged part of it of never having had to figure this stuff out before. You do lay it all out in a way that's like there is no separating this. You you are not going to raise an intuitive eater unless you process all of these other things. Um, but you're you're not shaming
1: anybody for it, you know. No. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That was we really wanted to make sure there was so much space for compassion for yourself in there because this stuff is hard. And yeah. Sorry to throw everybody under the bus as they read this.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, another criticism that intuitive eating gets is that it is positioned as um, the right way to eat. Dieting is the wrong way to eat and intuitive eating is the right way to eat and right and wrong with raising kids in general, but feeding kids is also a huge issue. And so I was wondering if you can just expand on what you've seen of that issue, especially as it. Involves feeding kids, and then how do you address that in the book? Because I I know that you do. You hold a lot of space for, as you were already saying, parents not being perfect.
1: Yeah, I actually 100% agree with a lot of that criticism with intuitive eating, and I'm pretty sure Summer does as well. I don't think it's an incredibly explicit conversation we've had, but I know we have very similar beliefs Mm -hmm. because intuitive eating is not the right way. It's, I guess, it's the natural way, and it's the least likely to cause harm with what we exist in right now. And also as it's written as a 10-step process, it's inaccessible for a lot of reasons. Everything from your own history with dieting and eating disorders or whatever that is really interfering with your ability to tap into all that space. To you know, I hold a lot of space for people who live in marginalized bodies and the more marginalized they are, the more likely you might need to seek safety in dieting and therefore intuitive eating will be inaccessible to you. And I mean, money is a thing. It's really hard to buy whatever you want, whenever you want it, if you don't have a lot of money. And that's how I just, that's how I practice professionally. That's how I live my life. Um, And that's the message we really wanted to convey in this, that intuitive eating isn't this end all be all And it isn't this like perfectly structured, you get to this end point and everything is suddenly better and you're eating Brussels sprouts all the time. It's different for everybody and it has to be. And it truly isn't about, you know, buying all the cookies or buying takeout every time you want to. It can be part of it, but it's about divesting from diet culture, divesting from that garbage as much as we are able. And that is the message we really wanted to convey in the book, because we don't want this to be inaccessible. There's enough out there that really kind of leans in the inaccessibility of intuitive eating and holds it in that kind of inaccessible space. Like a lot of people are waiting to drop the rules. Like, but then when do we get to the point where we eat healthier, where we eat more vegetables? And like, we're not waiting for that point for you. And we don't want you to wait for that point either, because... It's another diet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way to put it. And I noticed that throughout all the parents I work with, and I don't blame them one second, they're like, okay, now, now's the part where you tell me what to do. <laughs> when this situation happens, what is the correct thing to do, right? And you you give a lot of suggested language, but you don't really say like, this is the right way to do it. You say, this is how you could approach the decision. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. that, that's a big difference because one person might approach the decision just based on their own preferences, but also the, the food they have access to, the number of kids they have, you know, the amount of money that they have might make a completely different decision. I was thinking about one example that really stood out to me. It was if you're at the zoo with your kid and the, the kid sees an elephant ear pastry. And I think what you said is, you know, if if you can afford it, it might be a good time to demonstrate flexibility to your kid, even if you already packed other snacks. And the reason that this stood out to me is that I have three siblings. And when we went to the zoo, (laughs) there was no purchasing uh, of zoo food because it would suddenly be 20 or $30. And that was simply not happening. But I have two kids myself. And these days we do purchase zoo food when we go, I don't even bother packing snacks because, you know, it's actually um, more convenient for me, you know? So, so there's just very different situations there. And I really liked the way that you laid that out, but I still couldn't help but wonder, like, I mean, it's not, I'm not wondering, this is just a fact. The more money you have, the easier this is. Yes. Plain and
1: simple. Yes. Yeah. Which is the worst. Like I, I hate it. And it, I think speaks to, it just holds up the same privilege of having money. Does Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, the positions you're in.
0: And I think it comes up in various chapters, you talk about the, the, the real solution here is not to get every low income kid eating vegetables, it is to address the systemic barriers to income equality. <laughs> Right. Yes. And that is, I mean, you know, your, your book doesn't lay forth solutions on that. That is not Sorry. your expertise. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does remind me that as parents, we should all be doing what we can to advocate for that and, and address those changes because yeah. that's the real issue, one yeah. of the real issues yeah. here.
1: Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And if you have yeah. like, yeah, that's, that's, it's really true because if you have access to, to finances, to money, and, you know, you're well off enough to be able to give your kids a variety of food all the time, like, it's it's a very privileged thing to be able to give your kid fresh fish, for example. Even where I live, I live like really close to the coast and it's yeah. still not cheap. And that's a huge privilege to be able to expose your child to that on a regular basis or to, I don't know, get them to eat sushi, you know, stuff like right. that. Stuff that kids generally don't like to begin with. And if you can't afford to expose them to that on a regular basis, then they're, it's going to take longer before they have any acceptance of it if they do at all. And that's okay because right. one kids are going to live if they don't eat fish it's not required mm-hmm. and also the push shouldn't be like okay but like how can we get these lower income families to feed their kids more fish right it's how can we get how can we make sure the kids are fed and they don't feel like the only thing on their plate they can eat that they have to eat is fish because it's all we could be afforded for the night or there's nothing else that like is tasty that they're going to eat And so they go to bed hungry. That's a much worse scenario than giving your kid Dino Nuggets and Tater Shots, right? Hot (laughs) dogs, and
0: and then unfortunately. That meal is stigmatized by people who can't afford the fish, right? And there's a pressure to be doing better, you know, oh, oh sure, it's fine to feed your kid chicken nuggets if you have to, you know, if that's the only thing you can afford, you do you, like, you know, it's important to get the kids fed. But then there's this whole other set of pressure for people in upper classes, like not to, which is just gross. It's gross. Let's say it.
1: Yes. It's the like weird, it it goes along with that weird push to like put restrictions on what you can buy with food stamps. Mm, Um, Like I know there's a big push to put restrictions similar to WIC on food stamps, which is really problematic because calorie for calorie, it's a lot cheaper to buy processed food than it is to buy lettuce and get the same nutrients. I know the average food stamp cost or allotted amount a day is $3 per day per person, which is not a lot of money. And it's a lot cheaper to buy chicken nuggets, yeah. soda, any yeah. of that than it is to buy salmon. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that the book doesn't ignore that. I, I'm, I'm sure the way you were writing it, you couldn't have possibly ignored it. <laughs> but I'm glad because there there are resources out there that do ignore it. So I'm glad that um, this is available to parents. But tell us more about what we are going to find in this book. You Created three keys, three keys to raising an intuitive eater, which is you know a convenient um, little like wallet card that parents can <laughs> I can check if anybody. <laughs> Nobody uses wallet cards, but you know what are <laughs> what are these? <laughs> yeah, right. You should yeah you should have a little Etsy shop. I like
1: <laughs> all right, branding idea
0: got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what are these three keys? And I'm really interested to know how uh, you and Sumner together determined that these three things were the most important elements of raising an intuitive eater.
1: Yeah, we wanted to go with the keys and like the three of them because we wanted it to be. We wanted it to be digestible and small and and memorable. Like mm-hmm. we, I think I never, we never thought of wallet cards or magnets, but <laughs> we wanted it to be able to go on that. Um, right. And we wanted it to be simple. And, you know, so we focused on really divesting yourself from diet culture, from recognizing the way that we are sponges, the way that not we're not, the kids are sponges. And we throw things at them all the time, whether we know it or not, using that compassionate voice for both yourself and for your children for providing enough for your kids is one of the keys in a nutshell and really just focusing on getting your kids enough and providing them with unconditional love and support that they are very, very secure in is the best way to kind of raise a confident child Mm -hmm. in every way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I was very encouraged to see, I think the way you phrase it is uh, have unconditional love and support for your child's body and you have just really great information about how to actually do that, especially when you are not a person who had unconditional love and support for your own body and may still not feel that way. Um, But when people ask me, you know, how to raise an intuitive eater prior to me having access to this resource, I will say the first thing that comes to mind for me is you got to love your kid unconditionally. And I'm not even just talking about the body. I'm just talking about their gender identity, their chosen profession, who they choose to date everything. Like you got to just love them unconditionally and the body is is part of that but it's you know it's a whole pie chart of your yeah. body's gonna be like one slice of that right and and I realize I, I am incredibly privileged to have actually had that experience for me growing up um my my own mom did diet herself and I don't, I don't know what she did not have your book but she figured this out in the mid 80s of, of how not to pass on diet culture to um, all four of her kids now we are all mm. in um, pretty small bodies so that was a big factor but you know I Kind of put all these pieces together later on in my life that in the times where I was tempted to diet, you know, things like when I was super stressed or when I did notice my body getting bigger over the course of my 20s, just other things like it was just more important to go out to dinner with my friends and have a great time. You know, it was just like the, the size of my body was not important to me. So much thin privilege is like, I was protected by the thin privilege. Let's please get that out there. Um, But because I knew that it wasn't going to matter if my if my body actually got bigger, Mm -hmm. I knew that my parents weren't going to care, my husband wasn't going to care. I knew that society wasn't going to care, because it was a small body to begin with, right? so I, I was really encouraged to see that that you have that in the book. But whenever I'm asked for my advice on that, that's what I say. But then I say, and I'm a dietitian, not a therapist. So if you can't do that, then I, you should probably get some therapy because that is not in my wheelhouse no. <laughs> to, to actually. but what are what are the other two keys?
1: Yeah, with feeding enoughness, it's about I can't remember what exactly the wording is, but mm-hmm. it's providing regular and Supportive meals um, and snacks. So, um, making sure that your kid knows that there will be breakfast, lunch, and dinner, there will be snacks available at these times. So, when they don't finish a meal or they don't finish a snack or they're hungry or even they're just given like a treat, they know it'll come back. And that steady support of enoughness all the time helps create a sense of abundance around all food and that's the goal is we want we want food to feel abundant because food scarcity whether real or interpreted yeah is a trauma and that's one that if we have the privilege to be able to afford that we can avoid it yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the messages that parents are
0: getting, though, right now is that your kids shouldn't have this food and shouldn't have that food, um, which is a created form of scarcity, basically. Right. So is is that the key where it's called like uh, having a feeding routine yeah. with the flexibility and structure, though? Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: It's that we really lean on the flexibility coupled with the structure, because mm-hmm. that's how we I think we use the example at one point of teaching your child to walk like your your little wobbler to walk. You want them to be structured in the sense of like, you're not going to let them run into the street and because they can, but you're going to let them fall over and like cry when they hit the ground because they're going to, because they're frustrated and we're going to let them be frustrated and we're going to let them be like triumphant in their little successes they get. And, but we're also going to do the things we need to, to keep them safe. And that means, you know, the structure, the structure with food is providing the food for them at these regular times, providing enough as much as possible. And just kind of existing around that and the flexibility is letting it be not rigid in the sense of like you got to finish everything on your plate before you can have dessert or you can have you can have seconds of everything but you can't have seconds of dessert you already had a cookie today you can you can't have another one but and also structure with like flexibility with okay like it's technically past snack time but you're hungry so you can eat but if it's 20 minutes to dinner maybe not and continuing to like with the structure of and the The consistency of you might be hungry now, but dinner is in 20 minutes. You will be able to eat food then. And I will absolutely provide you with enough food. The more kids become confident in the fact that they will be able to eat and that that hunger will go away because, you know, kids are very short-sighted. Kids are very Mm -hmm. egocentric and don't really consider anything around them because that's how their brains work. But that's one way we can help that brain develop in the way that is – an abundant mindset and also confident with both hunger and fullness and food.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So important. I like the example that you use with um, if a neighbor dropped off fresh baked muffins and it's not snack time. A, a lot of the conventional advice about feeding kids, which we're going to get into would say, it's not snack time. We will put these away. We will have them at snack time. But you talk a little bit about, well, you know, what's my situation today? Is dinner in two hours or is dinner in 20 minutes? You know, did the kids smell how delicious the muffins are and they're asking for them or, you know, just making a decision that way. But you do suggest that even if it's not snack time, let's have these muffins, right? That's that's what intuitive eating absolutely is for adults. But a lot of the available advice so far for raising kids would say, save it to snack time, right? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, it's not realistic. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let's uh, let's rip that bandaid off. Um, So, a lot of the available advice about feeding kids, and I've certainly discussed this tons of times on this podcast, on my Instagram, comes from Ellen Satter and the Division of Responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, you uh, have a page in the book about Satter's work and contributions to the field and what the Division of Responsibility is, but you do not rely on it very heavily. I think it's it's mentioned once or twice. So, I would love to know more about your and Sumner's thoughts on the division of responsibility and why you chose not to make it uh, a focus in the book.
1: Yeah, it's a very conscious choice. There's a lot of discussion around this because we do have a lot of respect for the work Ellen Satter has done and the, the basically the way she's held up this entire industry for mm-hmm. so long because she has been the only resource. And we wanted to step away from that entirely. We don't, we, uh, we're not trying to throw out the, you know, the bathwater Entirely, not, not even the bathwater, definitely not the baby. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we definitely were influenced by division of responsibility in our like structure of enoughness. And we really wanted to step away from the kind of covert restriction that exists in DOR and the kind of covert. There's a lot of language. I don't, I don't love to talk bad about Ellen Satter, and there's a lot of language in like the Ellen Satter Institute, which she doesn't have entirely influence over, but around you know if you feed your kid this way then they will avoid obesity quote unquote Mm -hmm. Um, and that makes us really uncomfortable because it again comes down to like well if you do this right your kid will be good and it's not loving your child unconditionally Mm -hmm. and it is a little restrictive it is the one that is your kid can have seconds of anything on the plate but dessert dessert gets Mm -hmm. one and there is like time there is examples of but put out plates of Oreos for your kids to eat whenever they want, or as many Oreos as they want at snack time. That's great. But we want to go a step further. We want to go a step further of this isn't a, like having as many Oreos as you want isn't a rare treat, because then it becomes powerful. It becomes kind of a rebellion to do it. But it becomes like, oh, you want some of your Halloween candy now? Sure. Like, let's have a couple pieces. That's fine. (laughs) <laughs> and then they'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> and just continuing to like hold that up. Like this isn't going to be like once a month we do this or once a week we do this. It's you can have Halloween candy every day if you want. That's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um I'm saying Halloween candy because that's where my kids at still. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, nice. They must have gotten a lot of Halloween candy because we are in December. We didn't have any trick-or-treaters, so I <laughs> ah, <laughs> got a lot of nice. leftover candy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that that's that it's fascinating. And you did a really great job. And um, like you said, we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, or the bathwater, if we if- the bathwater is the structure of, of Satter's body of work, yeah. generally speaking. That's yeah, right? what I was <laughs> um, like DOR is the baby. And <laughs> so yeah, you're you're having structure. I mean, this is the, the main difference between intuitive eating for adults and whatever we want to call it, intuitive eating for kids or eating competence for kids, is what Satter calls It it, it is that there will be times when the adult says it's not time to eat, and that could be for financial reasons. You only have six muffins and you want to have one for breakfast every day this week or whatever. Or it could be for logistical reasons of dinner is on the table in 20 minutes and I want you to have an appetite for this thing I just cooked for an hour. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that that's where your feeding structure comes in. And it really does, you know, I don't want to say it doesn't mimic DOR, but it, it, it is like, you know, clearly um, a very similar approach. But there are definitely places where it is not only not similar, but like kind of contrary. Like there's a, an example of you say maybe, you know, having the opportunity to graze is important for kids because it helps them understand that you can have food when you're feeling hungry for it. And I, I noticed that I do this with my own kids, even though, like, I probably come off online as a DOR advocate. I like, I'm like, yeah, but for my kids, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which I probably need to do some atoning for, actually. But I, I'm, I'm interested in the parent who may be listening to this recording, who is like, what, what are you doing to me? I thought DOR was the thing. <laughs> you know how 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 can parents make sense of this?
1: Yeah. I mean, DOR is what we, the only thing we had for so long. I mean, it's mm-hmm. what I was taught in college. It's what, yeah. um, my, it's what my like kids daycares did forever was the DOR structure. Cause that's just mm-hmm. what is held up. It's what existed. <laughs> I mean, I'm very much like, do what you want. Like if that's what you want to do, cool, that's fine. And seeing the way that the flexibility and the grazing for like you, you use that example. Um, it's so important because it allows kids to feel like they have a choice, and it is, it's comes back to that structure and flexibility thing. Like there are going to be times where we will say no as parents because we, we have to, just like with everything, there will be times where like, we can't afford this. Like, I mean, I absolutely say no to my child getting candy at like Joanne fabrics. Cause that is expensive <laughs> and Safeway is two stores down. Like mm-hmm. we make a choice there and like, she's allowed to bring her money to summer camp and get candy from the vending machine, even though it's also extremely expensive and like if that's how she wants to spend it that's fine and allowing that is really important because kids are also distracted and and busy and I mean I can't tell you how many times my kids not interested in dinner not because she's not hungry but because that thing over there is a lot more interesting and while we can like work on making dinner time an important time they're kids Mm -hmm. who are going to (laughs) be distracted by the thing over there sometimes and They might not either recognize that hunger or, I mean, my kid will definitely say like, I'm done eating just to leave the table, but still be hungry. And if I don't then allow her to have something relatively soon afterward, she's, well, going to be a grump and also like going to be hungry. And we can have a talk about that. Like this would be what we'll do is like, well, honey, you didn't eat your dinner. Like I knew you were hungry, but you didn't eat your dinner. And here you go. And it doesn't have to be your cold Mm -hmm. dinner sitting on the table. Um, It can be anything from like, depending on where your kid is and where you are, it can be, go ahead, go to the kitchen and get something. Mm -hmm. Or it can be like, you can have one of these three things. Like, these are what I'm willing to make for you right now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So one thing that I'm curious about is that Satter's been at this since the early 80s. So we're talking about like... 40 years of research that the Satter Institute has done demonstrating the efficacy of Mm -hmm. DOR, which, you know, in that dinner situation, DOR would probably say you made your choice not to eat and and let the kid be hungry for the rest of the evening so that the kid gets the message that next time at dinner, um, you know, you're probably going to want to, want to eat, which Satter would say helps the child develop their eating competence of there are going to be times where just eating is more appropriate. I mean, you wouldn't eat in the middle of, you know, a two-hour meeting at work just because, you know, you felt like it. You like you have to make a choice that I'm going to feed myself beforehand because it's just logical. And similar to the kid, I'm going to feed myself at the dinner table because it's just logical because that's mm-hmm. when all the food is available. Um, but it can really come across as pretty authoritarian, you know, my way or the highway, like, you know, you chose not to eat. That's, you know, your responsibility. So you're saying uh, a fairly different approach. Mm-hmm. Satter has the whole ESI Institute and mm-hmm. 40 years of research. Yeah. How, how are we confident in what you and Sumner are, uh, are saying here that, that this is going to help kids?
1: Yeah, we did. I mean, we, ha- we, don- we haven't done any research studies, obviously, because we can't do that. We did work with a lot of people to set up the structure, especially the three keys as a researchable Hmm. thing. We wanted, we wanted it to be able to be researchable in the same way intuitive eating has been in the same way that DOR has been. And we're basing it on a lot of the, the research we have in the book that includes kids' attitudes around scarcity, kids' attitudes around dieting. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of research that exists for children and food and body image. Hmm outside of Ellen Satter. And we leaned a lot on that. I think we include some Ellen Satter research because it's what exists and it's helpful. And also there is space outside of this. And yes, it's not research on our part yet because Mm -hmm. again, not a research center. No one's paying me to do that. (laughs) And also we want it it to be that way. And we did base it in as much research as we possibly could, Mm -hmm. including the research, like you said, like not research. Well, yeah, there is research on the authoritarianism that can come across in that way. And we can also teach our kids that like, yeah, you can't eat in the middle of a three hour meeting because you're in a boardroom or whatever it is you're doing. (laughs) And like, I am also not going to try and find food for my kid when I'm going over a pass and there's not a restaurant for the next hour. Like Mm -hmm. you can, you can wait because it's the only option. And like, as an adult, if you don't get enough dinner, you will eat more food as a teenager. If you don't get enough dinner, you will eat more food because you have that choice. And like knowing that that's okay is actually really important. Everything from like, you could have seconds or you could eat sooner rather than later. And like in my brain right now, going to the whole like cliche that Chinese food only keeps you full for 30 minutes or whatever it is. There's always those foods that you eat and you get really hungry afterward, or it doesn't hold hold you as long. And there's a lesson to be learned in that, sure, of like, maybe you should eat more food at that moment. But also like, sometimes you eat it and you're full and then you just need food sooner and the rigidity – this is where, like, it's the rigidity of DOR for, for kids and even some rigidity around the more kind of diet-leaning intuitive eating tends to be like, well, if you ate Pop-Tarts for breakfast and it didn't hold you over until lunchtime, then, like, you're doing something wrong, right? Like, you should, mm. you should have something different for breakfast. When really, like, why can't the answer be, well, I had Pop-Tarts for breakfast and then I got hungry at 10 – why can't I just eat something at 10?
0: Yeah, definitely. And then, but then we're thinking about, you know, kids go to school, kids can't mm-hmm. eat at 10 necessarily, you know? <laughs> yeah. but you, you do give a lot of structure for that. And, and I'm just thinking it's an excellent point. When intuitive eating was published in 95, Tribble and Resch hadn't researched it, but that was <laughs> 26 years ago. And now it's been researched. When, when Satter's, I think DR first was published in Child of Mine, which came out in 83, wasn't researched. Yep. at the time, <laughs> you have to like you have to get the buzz before they'll like give you money to research it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I am. A- Really confident that this book is going to get a lot of buzz, and I'm really excited about that. I do have one more question about about DOR for you, and this comes from my experience as a dietitian working in, in pediatrics. And a lot of times with pretty complex cases, kids on feeding tubes, kids with sensory challenges, and DOR has been particularly studied as a therapeutic modality. So, you know, if I'm seeing a kid who wants nothing but applesauce pouches and goldfish and is grazing on Goldfish and the parent prepares dinner. My first go to is, hey, let's try DOR. They're never going to have an appetite for dinner if they're grazing on goldfish all day long. And so I don't necessarily want parents to get the impression that everything's out the window, grazing on goldfish all day long is great. Do you think there's a difference in uh, a child who might need a feeding intervention versus who is probably the audience of your book, which is just the majority of the population with typical children?
1: Yeah. Yes. We really wanted to make sure throughout the book, I think there's a few like blurbs throughout too, that includes this does not like a picky eating does not equal a diagnosed ARFID case which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is kind of what you described with the apple, loss, and goldfish. Um, This book is not for diagnosed eating disorders. If you, if you know, if your child has a diagnosed eating disorder, we highly recommend seeking out a dietitian who is competent in that. Um, ideally from a weight neutral intuitive eating kind of standpoint.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And responsive feeding as well, because responsive feeding right now is doing a lot of trainings for professionals, which I sign sign up for every one of them, (laughs) um, which is, um, and I I think that you actually, you have your page about Saturn DOR and then you flip the page and it's like, so we suggest responsive feeding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Responsive feeding is
1: really what we leaned into because just because it's newer doesn't mean that it's worse. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's, it's showing to be really effective. And yeah. it's very good. It's, it's very effective for children with ARFID. And again, like we don't recommend using our book for actual ARFID cases, maybe further in the recovery process for them. That's fine. And it also is effective for just picky eaters, kids who are picky by nature. <laughs> um, it's a much more supportive and inclusive system. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I know one criticism that responsive feeding gets is that it's not defined. And it It is, (laughs) but it it is not necessarily defined for the lay parent who is just like, wait, what? I'm not supposed to use Ellen Satter anymore, (laughs) which is not true. That statement is not even true. Like There is a lot of value in the general structure of division responsibility. But actually, your third key is the parent using their own intuitive eating voice. And I think that that's what it really hinges on is the parent being able to make those decisions when to diverge from the the snack schedule or, or whatever it is, or when to accomplish a food request and a parent really needs to rely on their own intuitive eating voice to do that. And if a parent doesn't have an intuitive eating voice, as many, many parents these days don't because of their own history with dieting, that can be super That's, challenging.
1: Yeah. yeah. One example, like, because this has happened in my house because I have a seven year old, you know, she is trying her hardest to stay awake at night <laughs> and will like go to bed and then five minutes later be like, I'm hungry. Like, you're, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes she is because she, like, I can intuitively, you know, as a parent, as an intuitive eater, I can look at what she's eaten in the night and be mm. like, okay, yeah, you probably are. You didn't eat any of your dinner mm. or a snack. But sometimes I'm like, hun, you just are trying to stay up. Like, mm. based on the entire attitude, based on yeah. everything that's happened tonight, I know that you're just trying to stay awake. And that's a really, like, you have to be intuitive to notice that because if it's DOR, if it's responsive, it is, like, or if it's not responsive, it is just, no you're in bed, you don't eat food. But like, Mm. I'm also not, I don't, I really don't want to send my kid to bed starving. Like I'm not going to bring her up for a meal, but I'll let her have a string cheese. Yeah. Um. yeah.
0: And I think that the appeal of DOR to people who have a history of dieting or or maybe haven't fully developed their own intuitive eating voice is that it gives us some rules, okay. like no decisions to make here. The answer is no, you know, that it would be in violation of DOR to to allow that basically. And, you know, I understand to anyone listening that you're probably like. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) But but really the ultimate point is it is greatly benefiting the child for the parent to develop their own intuitive eating voice, um, which is also just as an aside going to be greatly beneficial to the parent um, for themselves. But then we circle back way to what we're talking about in the beginning of is intuitive eating accessible to you? And you even, I think there's a whole page on like, listen, if you have chosen that intuitive eating is not going to work for you, um, you can still do this with your kids, but you know, here are the challenges and here's what you might want to yeah. consider, like basically, which is yeah. super tough.
1: Yeah. We, I mean, we dedicated a whole third of the book, I think whole section of the book, at least to how to develop your own intuitive eating voice as a parent and the importance of that. And and how you can do it at the same time as you're doing this with your kids, too. Like you don't have to be perfect at intuitive eating. You don't yeah that doesn't exist for one thing in order for, for to start moving your children in that direction, too. Yeah. And I think we really decided to let ourselves believe that it was really important. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely, and that makes me think of my my own story with my my mom was on Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and whatever, and I don't know what she did, but like even without your book, you know, managed to figure this out for kids. So you can't. I'm a big fan of the fake it till you make it strategy, Um, (laughs) but I'm also a big fan of parents getting the resources and support that they need for their own well being. Yes, because it is ultimately beneficial to the child, but also just fully independently because you are a human being deserving of all the love and support and resources that are are available to you. But yeah, but let's talk uh, a little bit about nutrition, which is um, (laughs) technically what you and I do for a living, although we haven't talked about it much here. (laughs) And and I I was actually surprised to find a couple chapters on nutrition in the book. So you you were not I mean, another criticism of intuitive eating is it's all donuts all the time. (laughs) Or that if if we were to trust you know not just children but anyone in general to make their own food choices they would choose all donuts all the time (laughs) Um, so therefore we must have these strict rules so you do have a chapter on nutrition but this can get really tough for parents because if you are saying no to candy at the checkout are you saying no because it's expensive or are you saying no because it's full of sugar. Right, like yeah. <laughs> so. Um, what do, what do you talk about in your nutrition chapter, and what do you want parents like ultimate takeaway to be here?
1: Yeah, I think for nutrition, we didn't want to not include nutrition because we knew that people, for dietitians, for one thing, and we knew people would be coming to this book expecting that for one thing. Because and because we're not trying to just sell this book to people who are already knee deep in their own intuitive eating stuff, and you know we're well versed in this. We wanted it to be accessible to everybody. We didn't want to shut everything out, and also. I feel like our main point wasn't to like create rules. Like we really wanted to not create rules. We did a lot of myth busting, a lot of like, but maybe this part isn't true. Maybe this isn't Mm -hmm. as important. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, I feel like honestly, at this point in my career, (laughs) that's kind of what I do with clients a lot of the time. And we do, I mean, we also have, I can't remember if it's an individual chapter or part of the other chapter. I think it's individual. If there is individual medical concerns for your child, how that can be incorporated in the way that we can say it in a book. But the myth-busting is the most, for all of it, even for the medical conditions, the myth-busting was the most important because there's so much out there. There There's so much nutrition information out there. And we wanted to step away from that. And starting to create that intentionality behind, like, I mean, I don't say yes to my kid every time she asks for candy at the checkout, partly because that would get really expensive. And sometimes it's because we have candy at home because we have candy at home. Um, (laughs) Yeah. we always do. Cause I also like chocolate. Um, yeah. I got bored one time and bought a five pound thing of starburst from the Amazon, <laughs> 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 <Right>. weird, <laughs> all pinks. It was worth it. And so we still have Starburst randomly floating around mm-hmm. the house and kind of instilling that, like, you don't need that because it's going to be at home. Like if you really want it next time, you can get it next time. Or you just bought a bag of donuts. Like we'll, if you, can, if you get that this time, we'll get this one next time. Like it's fine. Like if you can't have it today, you can have it tomorrow. Really instilling that, like, this will be here. And while I'm saying no right now, it's not because I think that you are wrong. It's because i well, one that's expensive. That's why I say to my kid every time we go to one of those fabric stores or craft stores, mm-hmm. I'm like, or Lowe's, yeah. we're, not, we're not doing this right now. That is a $5 mm-hmm. bag of candy. And kind of reinforcing that reason why. Like, we're not going to do mm-hmm. this today because we don't have time. We don't have the money. Um... We're about to go buy cake, whatever the thing is that is like we're not going to do this right now. As long as I mean, honestly, you're you're straightforward with your kid is actually really important. And when you catch yourself like, oof, I don't really want you to have that sugar. That's when that's when like the the work on ourselves with intuitive eating we can catch ourselves and do this like, oh, is that really a reason I want to tell my kid not to have food?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we can do this is a this is a dbd skill we can do the opposite action and <laughs> choose to let our kid have a piece of candy because i mean i for one and i really hope that the parents who pick up this book feel the same way i don't want my kid to ever feel the way i felt about sugar mm. um about like my want of sugar and how bad it was that i like like candy <laughs> um <laughs> and i just don't want her to have that experience so
0: yeah, and I did notice that you strongly recommend that when you do say no to a food, you audibly give the kid a reason, which is, it costs a lot of money, we're about to have dinner, you know, we have that at home, but that the reason pretty much never be, it's bad for you, or you yeah. already had, you know, that much sugar yeah. or whatever.
1: One I would really love to leave everyone's vocabulary is you don't need this. <laughs> Ah yes, <laughs> yes definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, and I know that you know
0: sugar is is pretty buzzy when it, when it comes to feeding kids, and so you do have a lot of information on that. I wanted to ask you in particular because I'm, I'm planning a, to dedicate a whole episode to the AHA recommendations on sugar, <laughs> which uh, only came out in 2016, mm-hmm. uh, but it did make it into your book in terms of what's going on here. Um, so for anyone who's not uh, familiar. 2016-ish, the AHA came out with, by age range, how much sugar is appropriate going up to adults. So under age two, it's zero. And I'm going to basically do a whole episode on that, so stay tuned. (laughs) Um, And then I think what you address is the the childhood range. I think it's, I don't even want to say it. It's like 25 grams or something like that. something like that. So what is the issue here?
1: It's restriction. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Plain and simple. Um, yeah. Because, and it is like, I mean, adults feel it. Adults feel this like, oh my God, I'm only allowed to have, I don't remember what it is for adults. Mm-hmm. I've kind of blocked out a lot of the stuff in my brain. It's like, oh, this is all yeah. I'm allowed to have. And I get, like, I, I hear this from clients all the time. And I mean, I know that I've been in that space before of the, well, I'm only allowed to have this amount of grams of sugar, teaspoons of sugar a day. And this thing has 80% or 120% of that. Like, oh my God, this is so bad. And it immediately puts us in that like binary, this is bad. I should not do this. And Mm -hmm. even having a restriction on sugar puts it in a bad category. You know, it's like the same way that like, I mean, this is, I have to emphasize how different that is, this is, but it's like alcohol. We have the limits on alcohol because it is like you have too many in a day. It's really not great for your health um, of alcoholic beverages. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, we see this a lot in American culture not being exposed to alcohol, not having it normalized as part of life makes you more likely to binge drink. Mm. And the same thing exists with sugar, except for Mm -hmm. one kill us. The way yeah, right. all will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really right. important because we put them in the same category. Right. And it's
0: it's not addictive. You you actually have a, a couple of pages on how sh- the research shows it is not addictive. Uh, it is the restriction mentality that makes us believe that we are addicted to it. But one thing, and I'm going to address this in my future episode, but the 25 gram limit, I mean, that has Parents reading labels. Okay, well, this bread has five grams, and that bread has one gram. So this bread is bad, and that bread is good. And if they had, okay, if they had two slices on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, then that's ten grams. So that means that dessert has to be less than fifteen grams, and the fruit snacks are sixteen grams. So there, I mean,
1: it's I'm not adopted. worth the
0: mental <laughs> space. It's not worth it. And the only like benefit that it serves to create. There is none. What it serves to create is not the benefit of a child has a nutritious diet. What it serves to create is that the adult is all up in their head about tallying up
1: their kids' sugar (laughs) every day. And it normalizes it because also, like, one of the things we do as parents when we start to raise eaters, no matter how we're raising them, is to teach them to figure it out on their own. Mm -hmm. And if one of the rules we have on food is you're only allowed to have X amount of sugar a day, we teach them how to figure that out. Yeah. And it just, carries on, you know? Yeah. And unless they start to challenge that, which is a lot of responsibility to put on a child. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that's another important point here is that, and this this is an element of responsive feeding, is that it is the adult's job to provide the food all the time. And, you know, so the kid knows that they uh, are not going to have to fend for themselves. But part of that is providing the food that the kid has a desire for, because if they're Mm -hmm. not getting it, they are going to fend for themselves. And that turns into all kinds of uh, of issues. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, it's very, like, it's super important to have the, you know, always provide at least one thing on the plate your kid's going to eat it could be rice it could be chicken nuggets it could be i don't know the entire meal like we don't have to cater our entire lives to our kids sometimes it's more convenient Mm -hmm. to be like well i'm only gonna make dinners you're gonna eat especially for single parents or um a lot of people are tired of fighting with their kids that's Mm -hmm. fine and also like if we're gonna like my I love I love fish tacos. Desperately love fish tacos mm-hmm. and spicy ones. My kid is not a spicy person mm-hmm. at all, which is heartbreaking to me, um, for its own reasons. <laughs> Maybe she'll get there. <laughs> Maybe she'll get there. She's 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 half Mexican. I'm like, please just <laughs> step up. <laughs> I can't make anything for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we have fish tacos, we make her a quesadilla because mm-hmm. I'm like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna expect you to eat this. Like mm-hmm. the I can't remember the had the other night we had some sort of chicken or something like that. And there was like a side that she would eat for sure. And she got in the, she gets in the habit of like, she hates cooked vegetables for some reason right now. That's the phase we're in. Cooked vegetables are the worst thing that's ever existed. But she knows that she grabs a piece of broccoli and puts it on her plate. Did she eat it? No, she looked at it, Um, (laughs) but she did it. (laughs) But she also ate like the rice we had on the side. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it's it's my fault, if I provide her an entire dinner that she won't eat like a food hmm. that I know that she won't eat. Like right. she also hates mashed potatoes. I don't know whose kid she is. My, both yeah. of my kids hate mashed potatoes. I don't understand. I don't it. get it. Mike, she's also so polite that she's like, I love mashed potatoes. These are so good. And then doesn't eat them. And I'm like, <laughs> we can see you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like if I make, I don't know, salmon and mashed potatoes and Brussels sprouts, she will not eat any of it. Mm-hmm. And she's entitled to that. Like yeah. there's food I don't like too. And, it's my fault if I don't provide her with something to eat, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be like, maybe it's, I know this is what I want for dinner. Like this is what I really want to make. So you can have a peanut butter and jelly or you can have, I mean, we always have dino nuggets in the fridge um, mm-hmm. because they're delicious. <laughs> you can have some dino, she knows how to use the air fryer, like pop them in the air fryer, have some dino nuggets. That's also a beautiful thing when your kid learns how to... Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not there yet.
0: Microwave. <laughs> Our microwave is too high for the microwave. <laughs> My kid is really tall, so it works oh. out really well. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. So what would you... This is... I, I'm picturing a parent um, kind of struggling with this because even within DOR, we hear always provide something, at least one food that the kid is going to be comfortable with. But, you know, I've certainly been in the situation where I thought I did that. <laughs> Then it turns out that uh, my kid doesn't want anything that's on the table. What do you, what would you in Sumner say that uh, a parent should do in that situation? Yeah.
1: I am s- still an advocate. I think uh, this is an Ellen Satter thing to not be a short order cook for your kids. Like mm-hmm. don't just like drop everything and change what you're doing or mm-hmm. make them a whole meal. And we can mm-hmm. also have accessible foods whether it's accessible for you to make because your kids are younger or things that as they get older they can make themselves that are allowed to eat like that will happen sometimes like there's one day we made a quesadilla for my kid and for some reason she didn't like the cheese whatever (laughs) um yeah thought she'd like it apparently the cheese was wrong (laughs) um because they're kids and they do that yeah and she was actually really sad for a little bit like she didn't want to tell us she didn't want to eat it because oh. she thought we'd be, like, upset with her. And I was like, "Hun, if you don't have to eat it, but I want you to mm-hmm. eat dinner. So, like, mm-hmm. you can either make yourself a peanut butter jelly or you can go make a, ma- a mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. And because we have, like, Trader Joe's mac and cheese, which is the best thing ever. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. And, like, God made herself a mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. And, like, and I could have done that, too, if she was younger. Um, but having that, like, I have a client who calls it the, uh, the peanut butter jelly rule. Which is, Mm -hmm. like, if you don't like what's on your plate, you can have a peanut butter and jelly. You can make yourself a peanut butter and jelly because you know how to do it. And I think that's always a really good idea to have. Because, I mean, we also, as adults, have that option. Like, Mm -hmm. whether it's like this, I don't like this. Or, wow, this didn't turn out. good because I thought it would. Mm -hmm. Or whatever that is. We can always be like, eh, I'm going to make myself a peanut butter and jelly.
0: Now, would you say that the adult plays some role in directing the nutrition of that alternative? Because my kid would happily get up and go get Halloween candy. Does the adult have a role in saying it can be chicken nuggets or uh, peanut butter and jelly? We're not going to have Halloween candy now.
1: I think so. I think that's a reasonable amount of structure to provide because it is mm-hmm. like this is dinner time. Like let's have dinner. Yeah. Like, there is also the benefit. And I think we talk about this. Of providing dessert with dinner. It normalizes it. And right. like we're already going to have Halloween candy with dinner. Or we're already going to have a scoop of ice cream with dinner. So not more of that right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe a dinner food. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and so that's like this is where having like the options of what a kid can have is really good. Like you can make a mac and cheese. You can have a peanut butter and jelly. Or you can have some chicken nuggets. Which would you would prefer? Mm-hmm. Partly because if the entire kitchen is open to a kid, it's a little overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Also, depending on the age, the height, the yeah. accessibility of your food. I think Sumner mentions like her youngest kid would like if given the option to choose his food all day, every day would probably choose popsicles because it's the most mm-hmm. accessible food to him yeah. height wise. Yeah. Um, my kid can now reach everything. So it's not helpful. But having that little bit of structure is not a bad thing. It comes back to that like structure with flexibility. The flexibility to not be like, no, you have to eat this thing. Mm-hmm. But the structure of like, and I want to make sure you get like, enough food and it's Mm -hmm. really hard to get enough food at dinner of just halloween candy Mm -hmm. so let's do this first like Mm -hmm. let's have food yeah can be really valuable (laughs)
0: What about um, parents developing their intuition to tell when the child is genuinely not hungry? Because my kid might say, I don't want any of those three things that you made for the main dish. She would probably always be able to find room in her stomach for Halloween candy. (laughs) But, you know, if I'm saying, oh, do you want a peanut butter sandwich? Do you want chicken nuggets? She genuinely just might not be hungry. Like I have one Mm -hmm. of those kids who gets all her calories earlier in the day, Mm -hmm. but but there's still, you know, a separate stomach for the the candy, which is fine. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I worry about parents. It it looks the same from the outside of, Mm -hmm. I don't want to eat this, but one is because I am not comfortable with any of those foods, and two is because I'm just genuinely not hungry. So, like, how can parents differentiate there?
1: I think, one, there's going to be some trial and error Mm -hmm. in all of this, and I think being okay with that is really challenging, and also really important, because... I mean, we're going to mess up for ourselves sometimes. We're going to mess up for our kids too, mm-hmm. and that's okay. And they're not going to get it right too because especially if they haven't had the chance to be intuitive their entire life, they might not kind of know how to recognize that as much or mm-hmm. might be really testing the boundaries a little bit. And that's okay because we do that as adults. And also we might get it wrong. We might be like, okay, then I don't, I don't know if you're actually hungry or we offer these things and they don't want any of them. Okay. And then they'll get hungry later. And I think recognizing that we can feed them then, like that's when we can have that flexibility of like, okay, yeah, you didn't really eat your dinner. Maybe you do need something fast before we go to bed is really important. And I think also this is one of the ways we can really foster trust and confidence in our kids and their own selves is to ask them. And again, they might get it wrong, but the more we can communicate of like, well, you didn't want any of the foods I just said. Are you, are you hungry? Like, do you want food? And like recognizing the things that they will always ask for. Like if it is always like, but I could have a Kit Kat. Like, <laughs> no. okay, but like <laughs> anything else. <laughs> yeah. And and doesn't mean you have to say no to the Kit Kat, but it means that like, that or that you have to say yes to it in that moment. Because that again, can be up to your intuitive judgment. But letting them learn to check in with themselves and learning like when they say like, For yourself, the trust in yourself that when they say, I'm not hungry, you're like, okay, I trust you.
0: Yeah. You know, and you also talk about how if, you know, if a kid's saying they, they don't want to eat, not even talking about hunger necessarily, just asking how is the child, like asking the child, how are you? Are you are you feeling anxiety? You know, like, yeah. is something else going on that is is like more important to you right now than your hunger signals? And what can we do to address that, which I yeah. thought was really valuable.
1: That's one of the phrases we really decided to lean on and encourage parents to use is, how are you? Mm hmm. Because we often will check in on like, well, why do you want that? Like, are, are you sure you want to eat that? But what if the question we ask is, how are you? Um, mm. and this actually came from a friend of mine who was at a, a conference and a parent asked him, oh, um, well, what do I do when my kid is asking for five cookies? And he was like, how about you ask them how they are? I was like, damn, like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We don't do that very often.
0: That's very different from any feeding uh, advice I've ever (laughs) probably come across. And I consume feeding advice pretty much day in and day out. (laughs) Uh, But we have been talking a lot about feeding. I'd love to wrap with a question that's not really about feeding. I mean, it's going to involve feeding. In the same way that there are not very many resources for parents about feeding kids, generally speaking, other than Ellen Satter, there are not very many resources for parents of kids in large bodies other than Ellen Satter. (laughs) And, you know, I I get asked often, um, sometimes uh, another dietitian who primarily works with adults say, you know, like Diana, my friend has a kid in a large body and, and they know that I'm a dietitian. So they ask me, but I don't know anything about kids. And so like, what resource would you recommend for a parent of a kid in a large body? Satter's book is called uh, Your Child's Weight Helping Without Harming. Uh, and there's some decent stuff in there, but it, it's actually pretty dense for uh, a parent who is just overwhelmed um, with living in a society that doesn't accept their child's body size. And also that book doesn't address um, I don't, uh, nearly as much the parent's own relationship with food and body the way your book does. So Next time somebody asks me that, I am going to say, have you considered how to raise an intuitive eater? And what's interesting about that is, you know, as we're talking in the beginning, the title is all about intuitive eater. What does the kid eat? What is, you know, the nutrition that the kid is consuming? Um, But this really is an excellent resource for parents who are not confident in in doing the, you know, quote unquote, right thing for their child's body size. So if you have anything to to add about, you know, what the book says about that and, and why you wanted to include it.
1: Yeah, that was a really important one for us. I don't know about Sumner's own experience. I think that she did not have the same experience I did. I was a bigger kid once I reached like later childhood. My partner was a big kid his entire childhood. And I mean, our kid is not small either because she comes from our genes. Like, that's how it works. And it was really important that we talk about that and address that because kids' bodies aren't meant to fix. Like, they're not something that we should be fixing because they, For one thing, at the very least, they recognize that when we feel that their body is wrong, when doctors feel their body is wrong, when we are constantly trying to change that, they recognize that and it creates a lot of harm. Even if we're just doing our best, which is usually what it is, like there are cases where that's not the situation. And also most of the time, parents are just trying their damnedest to like set their kids up for the best that they can. And... Kids in big bodies deserve that as well. And they also, they deserve this exact same process. Intuitive eating for a larger kid is the same as a skinny kid. And it should be. And we wanted to include some resources for how to talk to teachers, how to talk to doctors, how to talk to professionals and parents and grandparents in your child's life, coaches, because we can't protect them from everything, (laughs) but we can help educate people around us and educate our kid to be really confident in who they are. And it was just, it just feels really important because there's not, there's nothing out there Mm -mm. because I especially, and I know Sumner fully agrees, do not look at a kid's body as something to fix. Right. It's not the purpose of intuitive eating for kids isn't to make them skinny adults. Right. It's to make them confident eaters. (laughs)
0: Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you nailed it. (laughs) Although I really would like to, to see, uh, you know, whatever didn't make it into the book, like we were talking about how long it, it is, and you and Sumner was saying there was so much that didn't even make it into the book. So I, you know, maybe there's a sequel. I, I don't know. But you're like, no, no, it'll be another hundred and seventy thousand words. Yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's an incredible resource. If you have a question about feeding your kids, you will find it addressed in this book. I'm pretty confident. Um, and it is, honestly, it's pretty revolutionary because uh, as far as feeding kids in the anti-diet space goes... We didn't have much, and and now we have this, and I'm, I'm grateful for it as a practitioner. I know that uh, my my clients and followers are going to be really excited to read it. So um, it's coming out January 4th, um, and uh, which by the time this episode comes out, it will be available to the public. And I think we'll be living in a brave new world with uh, with the <laughs> of this
1: of this book. So
0: thank you so much, Amy, for your time today. If anyone's listening, where can they uh, find more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My website is prospernutritionwellness.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Amy, it's A-M-E-E underscore R-D and Twitter, which I guess if you really want to see little blurbs um, Mm -hmm. at Amy Severson. Yeah, that's the best place to find me. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much. And I really look forward to um, seeing what else comes out, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what what you have to say about feeding kids, intuitive eating, how we can fight the good fight here. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate you coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening to that long interview with Amy. Uh, Amy also wanted to share that the book has a website, which is intuitiveeating4kids.com, which I will also link in the show notes. Okay, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. If you have questions about raising intuitive eaters, about deviating from DOR, and in particular about cultivating your own intuitive eating voice for the benefit of your kids, the Raising Anti-Diet Kids Facebook group is the group for you. That is what we talk about in there. And in celebration of this new resource, I am going to be focusing some of my content in the upcoming few weeks on exactly that, how to raise intuitive eaters. So search for Raising Anti-Diet Kids on Facebook, or find the link to the group in this episode's show notes, and I will see you there. And until next time, embrace the mess.